Well, today is Trinity Sunday, one of our seven principal feasts, and the only feast day commemorating a doctrine rather than a person or event. All the readings that we heard today, in some way or another, point to this doctrine. In Genesis 1, we see the Spirit brooding over the darkness as the Father creates by the Word. In 2 Corinthians, we get that beautiful closing Trinitarian formula, which is familiar to us from the daily office liturgies, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. And in the gospel, of course, we are told by the risen Jesus to baptize those that come to him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, a formula that we use down to this day. So, of course, on Trinity Sunday, we have to have a sermon with one main theme and three points. <laughs> For we worship one Trinity, one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, as the Creed of St. Athanasius puts it. So the theme for today is the Lordship of Jesus, and this is seen in how Jesus is presented as a new Joseph, a new Cyrus, and a new Emmanuel. So first, a new Joseph. This passage is quite remarkable in terms of what it says about the Lordship of Jesus, but it starts with hesitation. The disciples see the risen Jesus on the mountain, and it says that they worshiped him but some doubted. Now that's an unfortunate translation, but because doubted here doesn't mean didn't believe or disbelieved. It has the connotation more of something like hesitation or uncertainty. They didn't know what to make of what they were experiencing. Um, they didn't know how to piece it into their current un way of understanding things. After all, it's not every day that you see someone raised from the dead appearing to you. Um, well, why would it be that they hesitated? One clue that Matthew's gospel gives us is an allusion to the Joseph story. In fact, the only other time in the Bible where we hear 11 worshiping is from the, that passage in Joseph's uh, early life where he tells his brothers about a dream that he had in which his brothers, represented by 11 stars, bow down to him. Uh, now, we know that this eventually comes true if you follow that whole long, beautiful Joseph story. Um, but there's a lot that happens in between those two events, right? Joseph is uh, sold into slavery by his, by his brothers. He sort of barely escapes death, and he's sold into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. He eventually finds himself in prison. And then he's raised up out of prison, as from death, out of the pit, to rule as second in command over Egypt. A famine sweeps over the land, and his brothers find that they're without grain, so they come down to Egypt seeking grain, and they bow down before the second in command, Joseph. And Joseph sees this, they don't know that this is Joseph at this point, but Joseph sees this happening, and he just marvels at the way that God has been working all of this uh, into his plan for history from the very beginning. Well, once his brothers, you know, there's a great reunion and the family eventually comes back to Egypt. Once his brothers realize who he is, they're very hesitant to assume that all is going to be well. Um, after all, you can you remember how they treated him. They, they tr tried to kill him, sold him into slavery, 
they lied to their father that he was actually killed by a wild beast. You know, this is not, you shouldn't just sort of expect that they're going to be welcomed back with open arms. Um, they even uh, plan a silly ruse saying after their father died that uh, he told them before he died that he really wanted Joseph to forgive them for what they had done to him. They were clearly nervous that Joseph would take revenge on them despite what he told them to the contrary. If Jesus is a new Joseph in this story, we can see why the disciples might hesitate here. After all, they're in a similar situation. They denied and abandoned Jesus on the night of his death, leaving him for dead. And remember, Jesus is the one who taught his disciples, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So now they stand before their risen and vindicated Lord, and it's not at all obvious that he will welcome them with open arms. But just as Joseph reassures his brothers with that wonderful line, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be saved. So Jesus also welcomes them, commissions them, and promises to be with them always after he takes on the world's evil and turns it to good to bring it about that many should be saved. In other words, we see in the story of Joseph's rise to rule over Egypt after a metaphorical death and resurrection, an advanced signpost of the ultimate lordship of Jesus over heaven and earth after his bodily death and resurrection. So Jesus is a new Joseph. He's also a new Cyrus. Now, this one might be a little bit more obscure, but in the Old Testament, in our Bibles, they end with the prophets, right? We have the law, the history, the wisdom literature, and then the prophets. And the very last prophet is Malachi. So if you flip to the very end, it's Malachi, uh, the prophet Malachi. But in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible, it's organized differently. They have three sections, the Torah, the uh, the prophets in the middle, and then the Ketuvim, or the writings, which is a miscellaneous collection at the end. So theirs don't end with the prophets or end with Malachi. The Hebrew script ordering of scripture that would have been familiar to, to Jews in Jesus' day ends with the book of Chronicles, which is one that, if I had to hazard a guess, very few would have actually had read all the way through. Um, it basically retells the story of Samuel and Kings. Uh, so why does this matter for this passage? Well, Matthew is at some pains in his gospel to show that Jesus' life fulfills the whole story of Israel. And if you look at Matthew's gospel carefully, he does that in little ways and in great ways. I mean, the whole gospel is organized according to sort of five teaching uh, blocks that, Matthew, that Jesus gives, like a new, a new law, a new Torah, right? Five teaching blocks. Um, and then little ways, this, this was done in order that this would fulfill what was spoken by the prophet is very common in Matthew. Well, um, if you look at the way the Hebrew Bible ends, uh, Second Chronicles closes with the proclamation by Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, right, after the Babylonian exile of, of the people of Israel. Persia is now the new kind of world empire. And, the, and Cyrus charges the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth 
and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Whoever among you, whoever is among you of all his people, let him go up. So he's telling that he's giving, he's saying, Cyrus, the Persian king, is saying, God has given me all authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. He wants me to build a temple in Jerusalem. If you're part of his people, go back to Jerusalem. He commissions them for that service to build the temple. Well, Jesus comes in Matthew's gospel as a greater Cyrus with greater authority over heaven and earth, over all things, in other words. Uh, And in fact, the language he uses, it clearly alludes to a passage in Daniel 7, where one like a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days sitting on the throne of heaven. And he is given authority over all things for all time. And as with Cyrus, Jesus likewise uses his authority to commission his followers to go make disciples. So we are given a mission. Jesus' disciples in each generation are to make disciples. And it's not as easy to see in our translation, but that's the, that's the imperative here. Make disciples. And it's supported by three participles. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Uh, so we are, the church's mission is to make disciples, and we do this by going with the gospel message, baptizing those who receive it in faith, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commands. Or to stick with the temple imagery, we build the church by making new disciples who are its spiritual blocks, its spiritual stones. This may not seem like much of commission in light of Jesus' claim that he is even now ruling the whole world. We might wonder why, if that's the case, the world is not more in line with his will. But his claim is not that all is now as he ultimately intends it to be. Instead, the claim is that he is working to untangle the messy knots of centuries of sin and selfishness and bring all things under his just and loving rule. It's kind of like the difference between a tangled slinky and a tangled kite line. If you have a messy knot in a kite, uh, it's usually easiest just to cut the line and tie a new line. But if you have a slinky that's tangled up, you can't do that. You have to untangle the mess uh, or throw the slinky out. The problem of sin is more like a tangled slinky than it is a tangled kite line. Since the problem runs far deeper than surface level changes in law or policy or behavior, right down through the deep motivations of the human heart, the solution takes the form of an apprenticeship to Jesus, who is the perfect image of our new humanity. This is an exciting calling It's something worth living for. It's, in fact, what we're made to do. But it's also a huge responsibility. And thankfully, we don't have to go it alone. So Jesus is a new Joseph, a new Cyrus. He shows in a new way what it is to be human. And lastly, he is a new Emmanuel. God's promise throughout the whole story of the Bible is to find a way to dwell with his people. Matthew's gospel opens with this claim that in some way yet to be seen, Jesus will make good on this promise. 
You remember he says that the one born to Mary is named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now the gospel ends by explaining how this will be accomplished. Jesus promises to be with us always to the end of the age. It's even stronger than that actually. It could be translated, I am with you every moment of every day until the completion of the age. That promise of presence is based on the work of the Trinity in the economy of salvation. Jesus can promise to be with us even as he goes to the Father because his spirit dwells in us, working in us the fruit of redemption until we bear the image of the man of heaven and know even as we are fully known. As the church fulfills her mission to make disciples, we do so in light of the Lordship of Jesus, whose authority knows no bounds, and in confidence of the new Emmanuel's promise to be with us always, even to the end of the age.